What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. We gon' make it all the way. We don't care what they all will say. Don't listen to the hate, no. Listen to my hate, yo. Destined to be great, yo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to this week's episode of the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. I'm Steve, and today I have with me Dr. Justin Short. Justin, how are you doing? Good, Steve. Glad to be here as always. What's new with you? How was your September? <laughs> no, no September here. I actually like to make September even better just because people say that it should suck. But yeah, things are good. Let's see. We, we took the kids camping this weekend. I tried to teach them how to fish, but I don't know myself anything about it. So we ended up just like jumping in the lake. I don't know how to do that stuff, but it was good. It was good. What about you? Is it deer season yet? You're supposed to be living in a tree for a while, right? It is. Deer season, bow season started September 15th in Missouri, where I live. We have a farm in Missouri and we have a farm in Illinois where our hunting lodge cabin is. And that starts October 1st this week. So it'll be on. Can't wait. Nice. Nice. Be safe out there. We want to hear from you. Don't do anything dangerous. Right. I never, never will, never have. Well, let's jump to this. I'm excited about today's topic. It's something that has really been helpful for me in my practice. You know, we've appreciated everyone listening in and we've got some feedback. Some things that a couple of people have reached out to me about is how I've been able to find success in, I guess you could say, in an insurance or low-fee environment that's heavily dependent on insurance. So I thought it would be cool to address this as it applies to a lot of dentists out there. How to thrive in a insurance-dominated environment. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you also take Medicaid as well, right? Yeah, so we do. I don't recommend it for everybody, but it depends on your state and what's covered and what's not and your location. But for me, for the kids, it's similar to PPO fees. For adults, it can be profitable if you do it correctly. So yes. So we've been able to do what we've been doing with pretty low fees. Madi would probably be jealous of me with how low these fees are sometimes. <laughs> There's nobody in the world that I would rather have jealous of me than than Madi. And I say that with a, a large dose of sarcasm. Something to aspire to. Basically, this is going to give you some keys to do what you want in any environment. It's kind of going to hopefully change your perspective on some of the excuses that lots of us have with insurances. So, you know, unless you live in the boonies and you have to drive a few hours to get, to, you know, to the nearest airport, you're likely familiar with what I'm talking about. Most dentists around you are likely in network. Your insurance reimbursement and the fee schedules are probably not what you'd like, but it's the reality that a lot of dentists face this today. So we're going to talk about how to not only survive, but to thrive. And we're going to give you some, hopefully some actionable pearls to take home with you. So let's go through some ways to increase success in an insurance-based practice. Number one, we believe in negotiating the highest fees you possibly can. So push back basically against the fee schedules, right? And this can be done. 
many insurances will negotiate fees with you. You can threaten to end insurance contracts with an insurance company and they may likely respond with perhaps a modest increase in fees. But I think you are better off to have somebody else do this. We have somebody we like to use. And if you'd like to know who we use, you can email us. But keep in mind that insurance companies, they speak to each other, particularly a couple really large umbrella leasable networks. So what this means is if you've signed up with terrible insurance company or third party A, then insurance companies B and C most likely know what your current reimbursement is at. And if it's really low fee, they'll automatically put you into a low tier schedule. So I would sign up with these, you know, umbrella companies like Dentamax and Connection and all that stuff only with great caution and only if you have negotiated upfront strong fees with them because your relationship with one company can really affect your fee strength with other plans. And if that's confusing to you, that's why we recommend you hire it out. Just kind of pull the trigger, invest some money in back into your practice and get this stuff straightened out for you. Yep. And actually, I'm surprised insurances negotiate at all. And I think there will come a time when they don't. So make sure your fees are as high as they can be now. And I know most docs think uh, I can only negotiate every couple of years. And usually that's not true. That's what they want you to think, but that's not actually true. And the first time I had my fees professionally negotiated, they kind of at the end, they kind of give you a printout showing if nothing else changed, you did the same exact procedures you did the last 12 months, this would be your additional income. And it was over like $50,000. So fairly substantial for me. Yeah. Yeah, it really adds up. And you're not doing any more work. You know, you're doing exactly what you were doing before, but you're getting paid closer to what you're worth. So if you haven't done this, just go ahead and do it. Renegotiate your fee schedules. So let's jump to number two. This one's probably much bigger and more valuable increase in your collections and productions, but this is it. Do more dentistry. Justin, how do you do more dentistry? I have no idea. I think a lot of these points today at first glance would be like, yeah, duh, let's get the highest fees. Let's do more dentistry. But hope is we dive in, you'll be able to walk away with some information here. So put simply, if a dentist wants to increase collections, one of three things have to happen. There's no other way around it. There's no magic spell to say you have to either increase fees, do more dentistry, or both. If you're in network, you've negotiated your fees, they're obviously set. So that means the first option to do more dentistry is your path. To do this, one of the biggest things we preach is to knock out the one tooth at a time dentistry, the least productive and least efficient way to operate a dental business is to do it one tooth at a time. And over 70% of dentistry is done one tooth at a time. Every time your butt gets out of that chair or you have to turn a room over, it's costing you money. It's fairly easy to understand. If I have four fillings to do, I can knock them out in an hour on one patient. If I have a patient that needs four fillings, I can do them all in one hour. Or if I have to see four separate patients to do four fillings, I do one filling each 
with checking a patient in and out, turning over the room four times, it may take me two hours for that same amount of production. Well, Justin, sure, that makes sense. But in the real world, it doesn't always work out like that. And you're right, it doesn't. But you can stack the deck in your favor over time. So in my practice, we would offer to do all of a patient's dentistry in one appointment or two if you send out for crowns, if they'd like to. But if it's better for them to split it up, we can do that too. But at least we were offering. Mrs. Smith, it sounds like we're in agreement. You need two crowns and four fillings. If you'd like to save time and trips to the office, we can get it all done for you in one appointment. Or, you know, if it's better for you, we can split it up also. No no big deal to us, whichever is better for you. So just by offering that, you know, we're not assuming they want to do things one tooth at a time. We're not diagnosing one tooth at a time, which is what people often like to do, especially with insurance. You know, well, we know Mrs. Smith is good for one tooth a year. Will you have those patients? Sure. But don't assume all your patients feel like that. Yeah. And you can steer them towards feeling the former. So we've talked with my staff that we want to share something like you just said. We can break this up if you need to. But, you know, if you'd really like to get everything just kind of fixed up and have your mouth where you want it, we can schedule a longer appointment and just kind of knock this all out in a day or two. And most people, they don't like coming to the desk. They don't like taking work off. So it saves them time, saves them money. And then it just gets the hassle of having dental work to be done out of their mind. And so most patients in my experience like that. That's the way to go. It's better for them and it's better for you. When we're talking efficiency, I think some dentists kind of look down on being a busy dentist, you know, working from room to room. I recently spoke with a dentist who was in network. He really wanted to increase his revenues, but he told me that I don't want to really feel a lot of pressure or try to be working on multiple patients at once. I just like to have one chair and treat one patient at a time. And that's kind of what I'd like to keep my office at. And I can understand, you know, where he's coming from, but Unless your office is doing just huge pros or implant cases, which his wasn't, you're not going to make more as an insurance practice doing it this way. So sorry. And things don't need to be hectic, but it's all right to push yourself. Be on your toes a little bit. Embrace the fact that you need to do more dentistry, even if it's on more patients. Take on that case that comes in right before lunch. Be willing to get that last emergency patient in that's just calling and it's almost the end of the day. Basically, be willing to do what other lazy dentists aren't willing to do. Yeah, if your fees are in a good place, your only option is to do higher numbers. To do higher numbers is to do more dentistry. And it's tough. It's tough when doctors we work with, and it doesn't happen very often, but I've had it a few times where, oh, I want to grow production. I want to grow collections. I want to expand my income and life and means and freedom, but I don't want to get too crazy at the office. You know, I'm pretty comfortable seeing my one chair and having my one hygienist see a patient every two hours or so. So I'm like, the only option you have is to double or triple your fees. I mean, there's nothing we're going to say that is going to get past those two things. See the razor fees, do more dentistry. Those are the only two options. And that's all we got for you. There's a lot that goes into that that we can work on, obviously. But 
I'm not going to be like, okay, can't raise your fees any higher. Don't want to do any more dentistry. Here's the secret that no one ever told you how to double your production. It's not going to happen. If there was a way to do that, I would know. Well, some people are like, they like go over their supply fee and they're like, well, let me cut my overhead by like buying cotton rolls cheaper or something. And no, it's really one of those two. So embrace it, accept it. You know, let's jump to number three. It's in the same vein, but it's increasing your efficiency to do more in less time. So let's mention some ideas how to do this. So if your insurance fees are low, you need to run a tight ship. You need to have kind of a lean and mean mindset. First step is making sure, obviously, your producers, you and your hygienists are always working. You don't want any dead spaces for your producers. They should be doing only things that they can do. So your hygienists, people do this differently, but... I like in my office, we do assisted hygiene where an assistant is setting up, breaking down rooms, taking x-rays, moving patients, bringing treatment plans. So the only thing our hygienist is doing is prophylaxis or SRP. You know, some people are against this and that's okay. But I hear a lot of people who talk about hygiene being a loss leader. And this mentality can help if your fees are squeezing you, you want to keep them producing. And this will take communication with your hygienist. Definitely. They need to understand the reasoning behind it and they really need to be appreciated for what they do. But no, hygiene doesn't need to be a loss leader, even if your hygiene fees are locked in at something less than you'd like. Speaking of appreciation, Steve, I appreciate that you use the official word prophylaxis. I haven't heard it for a while, and it's just a word that has so many different connotations. I appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> Scientific terms only here, okay? Yes, yes. All right. As you know, even though both of us, our practices are or were, in my case, insurance space, I didn't do assisted hygiene. I'm not for or against it but I erred in the direction that I wanted my really good hygienist to spend the entire time with their patient. No right or wrong. But what we did do to maximize our time, just a couple things. One, we offered adult fluoride. It's pretty crazy, I know. But it can add an extra 20 to $30 of production for three minutes of time at the end of a hygiene appointment. We also maximized all the x-rays that insurance would allow we didn't just take four bite wings because that's what everyone else did. We added in the x-rays of the interiors because insurance would allow us and allows us to check more teeth. So between those two things, just the PAs alone could add an additional 50 bucks to one of the two recall appointments per year. So let's do the math. If I'm adding just one fluoride treatment per year for $30, that's assuming the patient's declining fluoride treatment at their other cleaning appointment, and $50, an extra two to three PAs that is allowed by insurances usually, that's $80 per patient a year in additional income on top of what we were going to do anyway. So if you have a 1,000 patients coming through hygiene in a given year, that's $80,000 a year from fluoride and a couple PAs. Now, that's not going to take you from one to two million. I get it. But I'll take an extra $80,000 for the only increased expense of probably like $1,000 worth of fluoride. And if you do these kinds of things all over your practice, 
you become more efficient and productive. I hear you. Outside hygiene, you want your dentists obviously doing only things they can do. Your assistants, you want to maximize their value and train them in things that they can do. If you're in an EFDA state, you know, the expanded functions, you better be investing in your assistants to allow them to do all that extra stuff, whether it's placing fillings or I don't know what they do. I wish, I wish in my state we could have them. But if you are able to delegate fillings or anything, you know, dentures, you name it, make sure your assistants are doing everything they can. And I would even say maybe overstaff yourself just a little bit if you're in a really busy spot with an assistant just to keep you moving. That's something that I've kind of learned being a little bit shorthanded versus being a little extra handed. I would have extra help if you need it. So that's pretty straightforward. But I, I think it's also helpful to kind of go through your procedure workflows, whatever procedures you do or you do often in your office, and basically try to cut down the amount of time or the amount of appointments needed for treatment. For example, two days ago, we put in some implants and I, I like for implants to go ahead if you have good torque to put in healing abutments in during placement. I think it's best clinically because it gets the gingiva, you know, in a nice spot. So in a couple of months, it's right where you want to be. And then managerial wise, it saves the patient an extra appointment, an extra little second stage surgery down the road. And then you now have an efficient workflow where you have an implant, an impression and crown in three appointments, you know, little things like that. But I think it's helpful to go over, especially if you're implementing CEREC or like if you're doing endo with CEREC, making sure you're minimizing the amount of appointments for multi-appointment procedures. I know a lot of dentists that say they can't do dentures at PPO fees, but I love dentures in my office. They're really, really profitable. And it's because of our workflow. For example, for us, a denture is two, maybe up to three appointments, including delivery and all those appointments are really assistant-driven. They're not going to be taking my time. I don't know if you're interested in knowing more about dentures, but basically, we for the first appointment, we're making impressions, our master impressions at the first appointment. You know, the best prosthodontist I know shared this with me, and he just uses regular alginate for master impressions, so that's what I started to do. But, you know, and then if they have a reproducible blah, blah, we'll go ahead and get a registration, and it's off to the lab. Next appointment is delivery, so two appointments, just like that. If they don't have a reproducible bite, I'm going to have my assistants make a wax rim. I will tell the patient, hey, if you can hang out for a little bit longer or if you want to come back a little later today, we'll have a quick appointment where we put some wax in your mouth and then we'll get your denture in one more visit. So we're cutting down on visits. You know, I talked with like a dentist that asked me about this a week or two ago and he, and he just got out of school and they, they had like an, a seven appointment workflow for the denture or something. And it's like, nope, sorry, that's that's not going to work anymore. You know, these are kind of specific examples, but the idea is be intentional about each of your procedures and make sure you're doing things in the most lean and boiled down way possible. Yeah, I think in a perfect world, if we were getting compensated well from insurance companies, maybe we could spend seven appointments with a denture patient. But at the end of the day, you can't. You'd be losing your butt and no one would get a denture from you anymore because your doors would be shut. For procedures like dentures, and really any procedures, but let's use dentures since you brought it up. I appreciate you going through that, Steve, because it's been a long time since I've done a denture, and I'm glad I feel better about it. 
So let's look at dentures. You've got to look at what that denture is costing you, which I think you always need to be looking at. If you're getting, let's say, for your PPO, I don't know what you're getting. Let's call it $1,200 for a denture. And it costs you $400 in lab fees and takes you two hours of chair time. That's about $400 an hour of profit. Does that fit within your production goals for the office or not? For example, if your daily goal is $5,000 and you work an eight-hour day, that's $625 an hour you need to be producing to hit your goal. If you are doing work at $400 an hour, you're not going to hit your goal. Same with fillings. If it takes you 30 minutes to do a $150 filling, that's $300 an hour, and that's not hitting your goal. Here are your choices. Get faster. Do more in one appointment. Raise your fees. Charge an additional materials fee or whatever you can legally within your PPO contracts. Just don't do it or be okay with not hitting your goals. Or my favorite, put it in a column next to something else with production. It amazes me how many times I I hear from a doctor, we're not hitting our goal. Then I ask to look at the schedule and I see they have two fillings down for an hour at a total production of $300 when they need to be doing $500 to hit their goal. If you wanna produce, let's say $8,000 a day and you schedule eight hours in a day, listen closely, this is invaluable. You wanna take write this down, don't forget it, tattoo it on your face, whatever. So this is how you hit $8,000 a day on an eight hour day. You make sure each hour in your column has $1,000 of production there. It's what you do. I get there's a lot that goes into that, but that's what you need to figure out. Not seem perplexed why your schedule of $300 an hour isn't adding up to $8,000 at the end of the day. And if you want to hit $8,000 a day, you got eight hours, put $1,000 in each hour. That's how you do it. Yeah, you've been presenting some pretty solid math so far. And it's kind of hard to argue with that. And let's be clear, with all of this diagnosing treatment plan, there's going to be people out there that inevitably raise this flag and, and complain about this. We're not talking about over-treatment. We're not talking about doing more treatment than patients need or something that they don't. Our diagnosis is consistent. We're doing what helps the patient, but we want to do it in an efficient manner that's convenient for them, schedule it properly so it's doable for us, and it's a win-win for everybody. I know the people you're talking about. Hashtag Derek Williams. So many people like to use the words overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, conservative, whatever. All you have to do is just be honest. So many times I'd see something in an exam and I'd start to think to myself, like everyone else does, when did this patient have treatment last? Do they have benefits left? Are they going to get mad at me if I tell them about this? Can they afford it? None of that matters and it shouldn't matter. All that should matter is do they need the work? Could their oral health benefit from this or not? If so, you have a responsibility to tell them. You don't have a responsibility or the right to make assumptions based on the car they drive, the insurance benefits they have left, or the watch they're wearing. And for those of you, and there are a ton who are patting yourself on the back for being, quote, conservative, 
but really it's just an excuse to not have the hard conversations with your patients and tell them what they really need because it's uncomfortable sometimes. I get it. It was uncomfortable for me. Or maybe it's you don't have the case presentation skills. Whatever it is, knock it off. You're not a better dentist because you tell a patient they only need one crown when they really need three. I get that's the hard truth. And the reason it's called a hard truth, because it's hard to hear and it's also hard to tell. But Doc Rivers, Celtics coach, said it very well. Average players want to be left alone. Good players want to be coached. And the great players want truth. So, Thanks for pulling an NBA reference into that. I, I really like that, by the way. Yeah, that's what I'm here for, Steve. I'm here for the NBA coach quotes. Let's move on. Number four. This is a pretty quick one. Learn to play the insurance game. Insurance can be like a game with the coding and designations, et cetera, et cetera, and getting better coverage if you submit it this way versus that way. I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert here because I'm not. That's why I had somebody very good at my front desk to handle it for me. That being said, someone in your office, preferably your front desk, makes the most sense, right, needs to be a master at it because if You're not, I can guarantee you're leaving money on the table for the same amount of work you're doing now. One place to start, one book that I think is decent that talks about this is The Practice Whisper by Dr. Travis Campbell to get started. Yeah, that's a really good resource. I agree. So part of the insurance game is dealing with and especially learning to prevent denials, a little activity to improve this. So for the next two months, have your front desk report to you for each denied claim and then briefly review together what was denied. And this might actually uncover some really big problems in your office. If you are like many dentists out there that don't really know what's being written off or they don't know what's being denied. So it's probably a good practice anyways for you, but review it together and then implement whatever changes needed. So this is going to be adjustments to your notes diagnosis, probably need some intraoral photos or you'll have to change the claim submission dates, whatever it is. And it really is a game. And each insurance has its own inconvenient way of doing things. You need to basically learn from these trials and errors until the person submitting your insurance really knows the ins and outs of each thing. If you don't do it, you're just going to be losing a lot of money for a long time. It's a pain, but you got to learn to play the game. That's a good exercise. Do it, folks. If you want to make a difference, do it. Let's finish off. So number five, and this one's going to be a plot twist. Lessen your dependency on insurances. That's right. So the goal is to build your practice to the point where you don't need to have to be in network with every plan under the sun. There's a lot of thoughts and opinions about when or how or how to go out of network or in network. I really like Scott Luna's guidelines from Breakaway and and he shares that basically the goal is if you can't fill your schedule for two weeks out, if your schedule's not full for two weeks out, your insurance and also your marketing strategy will be to basically get more patients into your practice. As time passes, once you've built things up to where you are booked full for two weeks out, at that point, your strategy changes and you start selectively dropping the least profitable insurances and then changing your marketing 
to increase profitability rather than patient volume. And you don't need to drop everything or multiple at once. Obviously, you want to be strategic about it, probably in the worst ones first. Some dentists, though, can really do this. I mean, some dentists out there, they talk about how they can't get a patient in for months or something. And if that's you, you really need to overcome some fears and and accept that you could likely get out of some of these insurance restraints and be just fine. Interestingly, a little confession here. So I'm heavily based in insurance at my practice. Last year, our credentialing expired with a certain insurance company and our status changed to out of network. I didn't know about it and my front desk didn't really catch it either. We just kind of kept filing insurances and presenting treatment plans like normal. And it wasn't until several months later, I was looking around at some patient accounts and a couple EOBs. And I noticed that our reimbursement had more than doubled for every procedure and everything we had done from that insurance company. Like none of our patients knew. I didn't even know. No one knew, but we were like getting paid more than double for the exact same stuff. And it has really kind of opened my view to easing our dependence on PPO and, you know, insurances. So lastly, if you are in with a plan that you're just not making anything with due to just terrible reimbursements or just consistent denials, just don't be afraid. I mean, it's black and white. If you're just not making money, don't be afraid to drop it. I've never heard anyone so far say something like, man, we dropped United Concordia and our practice is just really hurting since then. I've just never heard it. So don't be afraid if you need to, to do that. No one's paid me $100 for a crown in a month. I'm really freaking out. Good stuff. And I would say I agree with all that mostly. Definitely nothing wrong with any of that advice. But there's also definitely nothing wrong or inferior about a strong PPO practice. There's definitely kind of that stigma of, dang, you're all fee for service. Like, you go, boy, you go, girl, which is great. I mean, I think it's awesome. But it definitely, again, doesn't make you any more or less of a dentist, a business person, anything like that. Derek's fee-for-service. And, I mean, you have to move away from that mindset of busyness is the same as productiveness, if that's even a word. And Steve is right. There are many of you who could drop an insurance right now, lose 50% of the patients from that insurance, but now you're getting full fees from the other half and production would stay the same. And now you've created room in your practice. You've created capacity to either fill that with other patients or maybe you take a day off a week, but your production stays the same. But even if the numbers stay the same, having a schedule that suddenly has room can be a bit scary for some. It's uncomfortable. I get it. But you've got to let the numbers roll. And it comes down to running your practice like a business and being intentional. Right. So in summary, if you're like most dentists out there and insurance is part of your practice, improve your fees, limit or your single tooth dentistry, be intentional about increasing your efficiency and learn the insurance game. I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll go into further depths on these topics in the future. But for now, thank you guys for listening. Feel free to join the conversations over at our Facebook page, 
for the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us for anything, you can reach out to us at Justin, Steve, or Derek at thelifestylepractice.com. And until next week, see ya. Later. Listen to be great.